The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Luke 12, 35 through 53. If you're reading uh, the, the Bible from the pew, that is in uh, on page 819, Luke 12, 35 through 53. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the reading of God's Word. Our sermon title this morning is uh, going to come right out of these verses here. It's just simply going to be called, How to Expect the Unexpected. King Jesus is uh, talking, he's giving several uh, metaphors, illustrations, and very parable kinds of ways about his return. He's the master who is coming back, and so we don't know the time when it's going to take place. That's the unexpected, but Jesus says as we wait for his return, there's a way for pilgrims, travelers, sojourners on the, the gospel road, on the gospel way to expect the unexpected. 
If you wanted to summarize just these verses down to one statement, the main idea, I think, that's lingering here in these verses is this, that vigilant watching and faithful working is how Jesus' followers can expect the unexpected. So the key words there that you're going to see come here in a little bit are this idea of watching and working while we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this has just been on my heart and mind. We prayed for it some this morning. We're going to get ready and we're going to pray here just for our time as we hear the word. Um, and as that language that I just referenced there, this idea of just us being uh, pilgrims, sojourners, travelers in this world, the Bible is very clear that if you're in Christ, this world is not our home. We are going somewhere better. We're going to go and live and be with our Christ who is preparing a place for us. But the fact of the matter is we, we live in this world. We're traveling through this world. And the Bible's very happy to use that language of we are pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're moving towards the destination along the gospel way. But as you know, six days and 22 hours ago when we last met, a lot of life has happened. And as we travel, just like if you were to go out on a journey and begin to walk and travel, the travels can pull a lot out of you. It can drain you. It can de-energize you. And spiritually speaking, that's true. Some of us, I'm guessing, since we've last met, have had some life happen to you, yes? You're wearying, traveling journeys since we've last gathered have just have you here this morning uh, tired, beat up, having suffered, you've had questions land in your lap, things happen to you that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy, and you're tired and you're just wondering, like, is it worth gathering with the saints? I just want to give you this little nugget here as it relates to us getting into God's Word. The Scriptures tell us and teach us that one of the ways that our weary souls are fed is, is with the food of God's Word. It's sustenance to us. It's nourishment to us. So you might be thinking, enough life happened in my life in the past six days and 22 hours where you're doubting that listening to God's Word right now is actually worth it. And the gentle encouragement and reminder of your Father right now is, this isn't the last place you should be. This is actually the place you should be. There's something good and right, truly supernatural, about when the saints gather together and a body of believers just lifts up their voices saying, we're pretty desperate. We're pretty dependent. We're pretty weary. We're pretty tired. We're pretty beat up. We're sinners and sufferers, sojourners along the gospel way, and we need Jesus to be our portion, to satisfy our souls. And so my encouragement is, as we turn to these words today, some words that have a bit of an edge to them, we can have our souls satisfied, and Christ can meet us through the preaching of the word. And so that's just my encouragement for you right now is to pray for those very things to happen as we turn our attention to these verses from Luke chapter 12, okay? So let's pray. Let's ask for the power of the Spirit to do this very thing through me, a messenger, so that we might see Jesus. Let's do that. 
Father, we are here gathered together because you are our Father. In Christ, we find salvation. And in Christ, we have now been adopted into your family, Father. And so, Father, you being the good Father that you are, you do not give scorpions. When we ask for bread, you meet and satisfy our needs. You know what we need. You have a care for us. So, Lord, for weary gospel pilgrims, for sojourners and travelers, would you work powerfully right now by the power of your Spirit so that these next many minutes together would be like gasoline, gospel gasoline poured into our souls, fueling us, feeding us, to leave and go back out in the next six days and 22 hours serving and living for you. Lord, help us truly to be vigilant watchers and faithful workers as we cast our eyes to your imminent return. Give us ears to hear now your words. It's in Jesus' your name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 12 is a pretty unique chapter in that when you look at what the scriptures are saying, um, and maybe even how your Bible uh, is printed, what you'll notice is that there's a lot of red ink if you have one of those Bibles where uh, the words of Jesus are put into red. If you'll notice that the high bulk of Luke 12 is Jesus talking to his disciples. It's him shepherding his people. If you remember over the past two weeks, one of the ways very specifically that Jesus has been shepherding those who follow him is to recognize is that as gospel travelers, as pilgrims on the sojourn way, we have fears. We have anxieties. Real life happens to real people. Jesus knows this. He doesn't call us to act as though that's not the case. He says, I grasp the fact and I'm fully cognizant that to live in this way means you have fears and you'll have anxieties. You remember over the past two weeks when we specifically addressed how Jesus is shepherding us, if you remember, he's called us as followers to beware the sin of hypocrisy. He's called us to face the fear of man that might lead us to not speak out and live for Christ because we fear man and how to kill that fear with the more powerful right fear of God. He called us to be on guard against greed and the anxious worries that can creep in the back door of our heart and begin to sink its roots into our thinking. Now, Jesus transitions out of shepherding his disciples as it relates to fears and anxieties, and without skipping a breath, he just rolls right into the context of our verses this morning. And he's looking at his disciples, and he's calling them to expect the unexpected as he calls them to think about the imminent future return that is going to take place when he ascends to heaven. If you look in verse 40, you see this just as plain as day when Jesus says to his disciples, 
you must also be ready, be ready, be watching, be waiting, have your eyes to the future. I want you to expect something that is going to take place. What is this you want us to be ready for, Jesus? Verse 40, the Son of Man, which is the way Jesus would reference himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there's this idea that Jesus is putting before his disciples. I want you to expect the unexpected. So as Jesus is continuing to shepherd his disciples, I just want you to see this, is that he's making a connection from what he's been saying about fears and anxieties to what he's saying now. Because in your copy of Scripture, if it's like my copy of Scripture, verse 34, as it transitions out of all the fear, anxiety, teaching he's been giving, and it transitions into verse 35, there is no pause. It's like Jesus just takes a breath, and just marches right on into this return. So there's a connection there between all this fear, anxiety stuff to cast your eyes to the future, be the kind of servants that are expectfully waiting and watching for the Savior's return. And so Jesus, I think, is making this connection that one of the best ways to conquer hypocrisy, one of the best ways to conquer the fear of man, one of the best ways to conquer the greed and anxious worries that can inundate our heart is to actually look for my return, to be reminded that these things that can lay hold of your hearts and minds is not all there is to this world. That there is coming a future day when, after I have died on the cross, because remember, at this point in time, he hasn't done this yet. He's going to be dead in the grave three days. He's going to resurrect from the dead, Acts. He's going to ascend into the heavenlies. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be an intermediate time between me ascending to the right hand of the Father and my return. And one of the ways you pursue me is by leaning into this idea of looking, waiting for my return. And so when Jesus transitions into this idea and is saying this, what Jesus is doing is he's shifting the emphasis. He's shifting the emphasis away from being worried about the present and to being watchful about the future. Because God is our Father, which is what he's taught us to pray and is how he's taught us to relate to the Father. Because our Father gives the good gift of the Holy Spirit. We saw this in this section when he said, this is how you can pray. You can pray and ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. And because the Father is good, he grants you what you need, the gift of the Spirit to walk with you, to lead you, to open your mouth when you feel like you might want to close your mouth about Christ. Because we are not forgotten by our Father. Remember last week, you're more valuable than a bird. He closed the lilies of the field because this father of ours cares for us, because this father of ours knows what we need. Here's what I want you to see, Jesus followers. We don't have to spend our energy worrying about what the father has in control. Instead, what we can do is see that we are freed up to spend our energy watching and working for the Savior as the kingdom grows and as the kingdom spreads we don't have to take the responsibility that belongs to the Father Himself and place it on our shoulders. We were never designed to do that. Worry can spin a lot of us out and cause us to spend a lot of energy. Jesus says, let the worries remain on the shoulders of the Father. Instead, 
of spending your energy trying to wrest that control from him, I want you to see that you are designed to spend your energy watching and working diligently as my servants until I return. That's what Jesus is getting at here this morning. When we turn to verse 35, this is exactly where Luke leads us as we first discover point number one, that Jesus is coming, and the key word here is watch. Jesus is coming, and so he's going to tell us, watch. Be those with eyes to the horizon, so to speak, and be watching for his return. Look in your Bible, starting with verse 35. Notice how Jesus speaks. These verses 35 through 40, they're just inundated with this language of watching, waiting, be awake, don't be sleepy, have your light burning, be looking, okay? Notice, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Why? So that they may open the door to him at once. When he comes and knocks. These verses call for a watchful wakefulness. A watchful wakefulness. Jesus' disciples are to stay dressed for action. It's just a sort of a colloquial kind of way of like what we might say is uh, gird up your loins, you know, roll up your sleeves, be dressed and ready for action, be ready to go at the drop of a hat. That's the idea of the phrase there. Keep your lamps burning, which is this idea of you have your eyes open. You've you got the light shining. You're out there looking. It's sort of like a watchman in the night or someone in uh, one of those watchtowers along like the seacoast, right? The light's on. It's burning. They're looking out and making sure no ship is going to run ashore. He says that kind of mentality is the, the mentality that you are to have. Be like men, servants who are waiting for their master to come home, not sleepy and unprepared, but instead prepared, Awake, be ready is the fuel which drives the everyday life of a Jesus follower. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Now, to make this point, Jesus goes into illustration mode. And he begins to talk about servants and masters and masters in their homes and how servants serve masters. He's just going to keep dipping into this bag of illustrations to keep giving us points that prove and drive home this idea of being watchful and this idea of being servants who work. And so in order to drive home this watchful idea, Jesus uses the illustration of a master who leaves his house and goes away to a wedding feast and the servants at home are going to be called to wait for him expectedly so that when he comes back home, they'll be ready to just jerk the door open and let the master in as soon as he arrives. Notice that in Jesus' illustration in verses 35 and 36 that the master's gone. The master is expected to return. He hasn't left them high and dry. He is gone, but he will return. But since none of the servants know when that time will be, Jesus is giving us this picture that the attitude, the mindset of the servants is one of, ant of anticipatory alertness. There's this anticipation in their hearts and in their minds. He could be coming back at any moment. And so because that's true, we remain alert as it relates to our duties. The master could knock 
on the door at any moment. It might be in the second watch of the night. It might be in the third watch of the night. Thus, they remain ready. They remain listening for their master's knock so that as soon as he arrives, the door can be opened up. He can be welcomed in. Uh, In a sense, we see this in a Davis household uh, somewhat regularly because of our little dog, Maximus the Yorkie. All right, Maximus the Yorkie. Max, in a sense, uh, is loved dearly. Um, And what Max loves to do is because he's uh, maybe a full seven pounds if he's lucky, um, he has sort of earned the privilege to be able to jump up on the table in our house and look out the windows. And so he loves to stare out the windows, namely to bark at squirrels, birds, the neighborhood cat, the post lady, and also when anyone in the family comes home. That's what he loves to do. You just see him. He's just constantly doing this, you know, peeking out the blinds and trying to, trying to look and see. He doesn't know when I'll return. So it's, what's interesting is I've seen this before, and I know it happens because when Tara takes my truck and leaves, you can hear my truck round the corner and come back home. It's sort of got a loud rumble to it. You can see him go into alert mode. And so what happens is when I leave, you can sort of see him mount up onto the table. When I back out of the driveway, you can see see him looking at me as I go, but then when I round the corner, I come back home, the sound of the truck tells him and signifies the master's home, and he goes nuts, and he starts barking, and he he welcomes the master back home because he is heard, and it wasn't because he was asleep, and it wasn't because he was off unprepared, but he remained prepared, he remained alert, and when the sound of the truck came around the corner, that told him, the master's here, it's time to go into full tilt welcome mode. If you grasp that idea, that's just the picture that Jesus is painting for his servants. He's the master, we're the servants, and Jesus' point is that the master's servants live with ready watchfulness. We live with ready watchfulness. If you go down to verses 39 and 40, Jesus changes the illustration a bit, but he's driving home a very similar point. When you look at verses 39 and 40, Jesus turns to the illustration and he speaks of a thief that's seeking to break into the master's house. Jesus says in verse 39 that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, then you can be guaranteed of this. The master would not have left his house to be broken into. In other words, if the master of the house had known the details of the break-in, guess what? According to that tip-off, the master would have been ready and waiting, right? So if I go down to the local coffee shop and I'm just hanging out there sipping some coffee and I hear someone say, hey, I know a guy named Tom Cheshire. And I'm going to go, and I think he's got some stuff in his house that I might want for myself. And so at 2 a.m. tonight, I'm going to go and break into his house. If Tom knows that information, the idea is that he's not going to be snoozing at 2 a.m. But if he doesn't know that information, he goes to sleep, and then he gets robbed. Jesus is saying that my disciples are like this master in the sense that we have received the tip-off. Jesus is coming back, so don't fall asleep. Don't do what this master did. He did not know, and so he acted according to what he did not know, and his house got robbed. But we are not those who do not know. We are those who do know. Jesus has tipped us off. I am coming back. So be ready. 
I want you to expect the unexpected. Now, notice that this kind of alertness, this kind of task, this kind of good thing that Jesus is calling us to, it is a wearisome thing, is it not? How often, how many of us this past week spent more than 60 seconds considering the return of Christ? I saw a hand. A hand. According to Jesus, it should have been all of our hands. Notice I didn't raise my hand. I could have raised my hand only because I was reading about this in preparation for the sermon today. But if I wasn't reading about this and preparing for the sermon today, I wouldn't have been able to raise my hand. One of the things that tends to sit on the back burner of our minds, if it's even on the back burner of our minds, is the imminent, cannot be avoided, will for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, happen, return of Christ. And Jesus is talking to us in a way where he recognizes that this kind of watchful wakefulness, this ready, anticipatory alertness, I think he grasped the concept that this can be a wearying thing to live in this way, to always, to always be ready and to process life through the lens of the return of Christ. So notice that Jesus helps us in verses 37 and 38 by telling us that this is not a thankless task on his part. In a very shocking twist, Jesus says there is a remarkable blessing for this readiness. Do you see there in verse 37? Notice how it starts. It says this, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake. Look at the very end of verse 38. Blessed are those servants. There's this double blessing for servants who live in light of the return of their master. And in in an outlandish twist, Jesus describes what this blessing is. The blessing is that in the heavenlies, when Christ the Master returns, there's going to be this phenomenal role reversal that takes place. Notice what he says there in verse 37. The Master will dress himself for service and have the servants recline at table, and he, the master, will come and serve them. It's just this crazy role reversal of, I'm a servant in the house of the master. The way this works is, I'm the one who's dressed for service as a servant. It's the master who reclines at table. It's we who serve him. But Jesus is saying, just imagine that if this master goes away to the wedding party, comes back at a time when it was least expected... But he comes back and he finds the household servants. They are ready and willing to greet him. Not only will he have gone off to that party, but he will immediately throw this party that he will go and take the servants' clothes, dress himself for service, and then he will elevate these servants to the place of them reclining in the place of the master, and the master will begin to serve the servants. It's this mind-boggling role reversal. And Jesus says that's the blessing coming for the servants, followers of Jesus, who live in this way as it relates to the Master Jesus. This is a startling picture. It's a picture of Jesus' exuberance over the prospect of returning and finding wide-awake servants who could not wait for the return of the King. In one sense, it shocks us that the King of Kings would serve us, but then again, it doesn't really shock, right? Because Jesus, the King of Kings, is also the chief servant. You see echoes of this right before Jesus dies in John 13. You remember this? Dresses himself for service, bends down before the twelve, 
and washes their feet. This is the blessing and the reward that comes to servants who live with the anticipation of the king's return. So the question, I think, to ask ourselves is this, how am I watching? How am I watching? Am I watching with wakefulness? Does this anticipatory alertness describe me? Maybe not perfectly, but it does in a measure describe you or are you even watching? You're like, dude, if Jesus is telling me to watch, man, like I'm not even in that category. Like the idea of the return of Christ just doesn't even like exist in my mind. Like it, it doesn't influence how I parent. It doesn't influence how I work. It doesn't become the lens or the headspace by which I interact with my, my spouse or my kids or any of these sorts of things. Like it's just a non, non-issue for me. For many of us, the expectation of Jesus' return plays very little to no part at all in our daily discipleship. And too often, our activities and priorities in life indicate that we are not paying attention to the unavoidable return of Jesus. So for sleepy servants, these words from Christ himself are words that serve as a wake-up call to not continue to remain sleepy and unalert to his return, but to be awake and alert to his return. And for those servants who do find themselves just thinking and trying to live in this way, I get it, not perfectly, but there's an honest, genuine desire to live in this way. Jesus' words are meant to spur us on in this vigilant watchfulness. Jesus is coming. Watch. That's point number one. Notice that this doesn't stand alone. We're not just to be watchers, but we're also to be workers while we watch. That's what we see in point number two. Luke is going to take us through the door of a question that the apostle Peter asks, and we see this idea, point number two, that Jesus is coming So we are to give ourselves to work. Work is the word that describes verses 41 through 48. So in your copy of Scripture, look at verse 41. Notice what Peter says. He asked Jesus a question. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? As I said earlier, since the beginning of chapter 12, Luke has stressed that these words from Jesus are for his disciples. Jesus isn't peppering these thoughts out to like the the faceless masses. He's looking at those who are saying to him, you're my savior, I'm your follower. You're the master, I'm the servant. We are following you. Jesus is addressing people who are self-denying, cross-carrying followers of Christ. And so what Luke is doing is he's using this question from Peter to stress this very point that as Jesus is looking at the disciples and saying, I'm going to come back, I'm going to die, I'm going to go into the grave, I'm going to resurrect from the dead, I'm going to ascend into the heavens, and there will be a space in between, like a master who goes to a wedding feast between my ascension into heaven and my return as the capital K, King of Kings, to rule and reign and sum up all things. There's going to be a space. And so those who follow me and are watching and waiting for that return, this is a good thing. But now what I want you to see is that this thing that I'm about to say, it also is for you disciples. 
So Jesus, notice, doesn't directly answer Peter's question, but the implied answer in the context of Luke 12 is that, yes, Jesus is still talking to his own, the disciples. Thus, Peter's question is connecting these two sections together. The master's servants watch, and since that's true, then we need to ask the question, what does faithful watching look like? That's a good question, right? If Jesus says, James Wilborn, I'm telling you to be a servant who watches. My hope is that James would go, Jesus, will you please tell me how to faithfully do this thing you're asking me to do? How do I watch for your return with faithfulness? Notice that Jesus' answer is this. Faithful watching looks like faithful working. That's what he's saying. You can tell that a servant is faithfully watching and living in light of the master's imminent return by the way, the behaviors, the attitude of heart that encapsulates, fuels, motivates the behavior of that servant. Faithful watching looks like faithful working in the absence of the master. Verse 42, look at Jesus. He's going to go into illustration mode again. Jesus says this. He poses a question. Who then is the faithful? There it is. The faithful and wise manager. You could say, who then is the faithful and wise servant? That's going to manage the master's affairs. Whom his master says, this servant should be in charge of my household. Who is this kind of servant? To give the portion of food at the proper time to the servants. Who can manage my affairs? Here's the answer that Jesus gives. Blessed is that servant. This is the kind of servant I'm talking about. The one who is faithful and wise. It's the one whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, what does it look like to be the kind of faithful servant that Jesus has just been talking about? The answer is it looks like being a servant who simply does what Jesus asks his servants to do. That's the kind of faithful watching and faithful working. How can I know if I'm a faithful servant in the household of God? The answer is, is your life marked by the things Jesus asks his servants to do? That's what Jesus is talking about. Again, not perfectly, but it's that attitude and it's that behavior that says, while the master is away, I'm going to do what he's called me to do. You guys have heard it. I've heard it. I've seen it. You grow up in a workplace. While the boss is away, the employees play. The boss is gone. And in his absence, we're going to do everything opposite of what he asked us to do. Thank you very much, boss, for leaving. Jesus says the polar opposite is what is to be true of followers of Jesus. The idea is that as a servant watches for their master's return, the servant works to accomplish the master's will. Notice this, what Jesus is teaching us. The long wait between his ascension and his return, this long wait doesn't take the edge off the vigilance of the servant. Why? Because the servant works each day as if master Jesus was going to arrive today. That's the kind of idea there, right, of this readiness and this alert kind of thing. You ask the master or you ask the servant, like, why are you working today? Your boss isn't around. Well, he could be later today, and so I'm going to work as if he's coming back today. You wake up the next day. He's nowhere around. He didn't come last night. Yeah, that's true, but he could come today. 
And I want to be ready to receive. So that's why I'm today, tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. That's the kind of attitude. He could come today. There's nothing that says it couldn't be at the end of the service. And so the attitude is, in light of his possible return, his long wait in between leaving and coming, it doesn't blunt the edge of vigilance. Why do you work like this, servant? Why do we do the things we do, O servants of Jesus? It's because my master is Jesus. And he might be coming back today. And I want to be found as a faithful servant doing his will today. That's why I'm living in this way. Notice that just as there is blessing for faithful watching, that whole rule reversal idea, Jesus says in verse 44, there's also blessing for faithful working. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will set him, the servant, over all his possessions. But let's pose this question here. Jesus is doing something. In verses 41 through 48, he's slicing it in half and he's saying, let me give you two pictures. Okay, that's what's going on right now. Verses 41 through 44 were this. He's talking about a servant who adopts this attitude. In light of the master's delay, that delay motivates me to work in such a way, because I'm watching for his return, it motivates me in such a way where his delay fuels me to be about his business. Who knows, my master might be coming back today. My aim is to truly please and honor the master. Jesus, rolling into verse 45, says, let's hop over into another category. And this is where Jesus starts to get into some sharp words. Where you have someone who says, yeah, I'm a servant. I'm a servant in the household of the master. But the master's delay doesn't prompt them to work. The master's delay actually prompts them to sin and selfishness. That's what Jesus is doing right now. What if the servant adopts an opposite attitude? So instead of the master's delay spurring on faithful work to accomplish the master's will, the master's delay actually becomes an excuse for that servant to indulge sin, to serve self while the master is away. Jesus says there are servants who live like this. And he's not just talking about servants in an illustration sense, but servants who call themselves servants in the household of God, servants in the family of Christ. And Jesus says there's very real consequences for this attitude and behavior. Notice verse 45 and 46. If that servant says to himself, listen, my master is delayed in coming. And then begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come back on a day when he does not expect him. And that master is going to come back at an hour when this servant did not know. And notice the kind of language here. The master will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Jesus is using parable language, and he's being overly and explicitly shocking. He's being deliberately extreme here because Jesus is shocking sleepy servants from their stupor. 
That's what he's aiming to do right now. And the reason why Jesus is using very deliberate and extreme language right now is because when a servant uses the master's delay as an excuse for self-service, Jesus is saying this attitude of heart and the behavior that flows from this attitude of heart suggests that this servant isn't really a servant in the household. He's not a servant that is an authentic disciple, so to speak. So when Jesus comes along, so notice this, when Jesus is rounding the corner in these verses, he's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to church-going folk like us. Because there's a way for us to say, I'm a servant in the household of God, I have a master named Jesus, we can carry a Bible, and we can quote some prayers, and we can say some things, and we can show up on Sunday, we can do all the stuff and hang on us all the paraphernalia that would make us think that we are servants, but if the regular, habitual, rhythmic attitude of the mind is, my Savior isn't around, my Master isn't here, His delay is a delay, and so I'm going to use His delay as an excuse to not self-sacrifice, but to self-serve. It's going to be all about me. The whole Jesus thing, I'm going to throw off in the back of my mind. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm actually going to live in a way that serves me, that magnifies sin. Jesus is saying here, I want to use deliberately extreme language with you right now for those of us who would claim to say, I'm a servant, but the attitude and behavior, the rhythmic, habitual attitude and behavior of your life is this, anything but being a servant. Jesus says with deliberately extreme language that there will come a time upon Christ's return that many will say to me, this is Matthew 7 language, Lord, Lord, did we not, do you remember how this goes in Matthew 7, did we not? And then there's this whole delineation of just all these things that we did and Jesus is going to say, I don't actually know you in a saving way. That kind of idea is what Jesus is getting at in these verses right here. Jesus in kindness, Jesus in mercy, Jesus in love, Jesus in grace is talking to those of us who have grown up in church, have heard the stories, who sing the songs, who go to the community groups, who can read the books and quote the scriptures and all of these things. But the idea that the return of Christ and in its delay doesn't leave me, lead me to work as unto the Lord, but leaves me to go, you know what, I'm, this is, is going to be all about me right now. It's an indicator that you, while you think you're a servant in the house, sure, you're not actually. Verse 47 says, that servant that I was just talking about, says Jesus. That servant knew the master's will, but made a deliberate choice to not get ready. In other words, made a deliberate choice to not be watchful. That servant knew the master's will, but didn't act according to his will, didn't go about doing what the master wanted. And this is why Jesus says his punishment was so severe. His knowledge makes him all the more accountable as opposed to someone, verse 48, who did not know these things. 
Everyone's going to be held accountable, but for those of us who know the things that we know, we will be held more accountable for the things that we know. And this just seems to be Jesus' point. In the verse 48, as servants, we will be held accountable for what we know and what we did with what we know. For, Jesus says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. All of this prompts the extremely searching question, what kind of servant am I? What kind of servant am I? Does the delay of the master... Master Jesus, does that stoke a joy-filled pursuit of His kingdom work? Does it fuel this, this anticipatory, delight-filled alertness? My, my Savior might be coming home today. And because that's true, like this, this shades and it colors how I pastor, and it shades and it colors how I parent, and it shades and colors how I relate in my, my marriage, it shades and it colors how I relate to my neighbors, it shades and colors my pursuits, and it shades and it colors what I say no to. The master might be coming today, and I love him, and I can't wait for it to take place. I'm going to live in light of this. Or are we the kind of servant who says, ah, his delay that's just an excuse. I don't know that that's going to come. I'm going to live life in a pursuit of pleasing me. What kind of servant am I? Jesus is coming. Watch, he says. Jesus is coming. Work, he says. Finally, point number three. Jesus has come. Division. For some of us here that are just a little upset because I had watch work and then the third word began with the letter d if you're just like you're really becoming like anal right now is like you can use the word war if you want to use the word war jesus is bringing war he's bringing division notice really unique language here the fact that master jesus has come to cast fire on the earth he says and the fact that he has come to be baptized with a very specific baptism notice what it leads him to say in verse 51 it leads Jesus to say, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And before anyone can answer, he says, no. If you're about to say yes, you're wrong. No, I have not come to give peace on earth, but rather I've come to get, bring division. Now that verse will undo and spin out a community group in about a half a second. Okay? I mean, this is a head-scratcher, right? And the reason why these words out of the lips of Jesus are a head-scratcher is because we all know the Christmas story, don't we? I mean, is Jesus not the Prince of Peace? Isaiah 9, 6, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so sort of what gives. Was it not the great multitude of angels on that first Christmas night who crack open the midnight sky over Bethlehem with shouts of glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill to men? So what gives? So how can Jesus say, as the Prince of Peace, and peace has now come to earth with my coming, I haven't come to give peace on earth, but I've come to give division. The answer is found in that verse right before where Jesus talks about the kind of baptism he's going to be baptized with. The answer is found in the baptism Jesus is going to be baptized with, namely that baptism of his death. 
you go and read the Gospels, this is what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to be baptized with a certain kind of death. And in his death on the cross, what we see is that Jesus was flooded by, Jesus was immersed under the fullness of God's just judgment against sin. Jesus didn't have just a little bit of judgment against sin thrown against him. It wasn't just like a light sprinkling. It was him fully immersed beneath the flood of God's righteous judgment against sin. That's what he bore when he went to the cross as the Lamb of God. Thus, in this way, Jesus not only bore the fire of God's judgment, but Jesus also brought the fire of God's judgment on earth. In light of this knowledge, this is going to begin to divide people. You see, the message of hope in the Bible is that because Jesus bore the fire of God's wrath for our sin, it is now entirely possible for sinners to have genuine, everlasting peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, those who were once far off but have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, we can truly say, along with the Apostle Paul, Jesus himself is our peace. We can save that right now. So it's no lie for Jesus to turn to his disciples like hours before he goes to the cross and say to them, listen, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. As the Son, I have peace with the Father. The Father has peace with me. And for anyone who repents of sin and turns to me, placing faith in me as their only hope of salvation, guess what I can give to you? I can give to you the peace with God that I have. It is right and good to see Jesus as the Prince of Peace because he can take unreconciled sinners and reconcile them to the Father and they can have peace with God. So it's not a lie for Jesus to say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, nor is it a lie for Jesus to say, don't think I have come to give peace on earth, but rather division. The question is, why are both equally true? Why are both equally true? The answer is because Jesus is teaching his disciples a very key point about discipleship. He's teaching us that vertical peace with God can and will bring horizontal division in our relationships. Vertical peace with God that we can find in no one else but Jesus Christ it will and can bring horizontal division and divide those earthly relationships that we love and cherish so dearly. Why? Because when you, when I, find peace with God through Jesus Christ, our allegiance shifts. We no longer pledge allegiance to self, but now pledge allegiance to our Lord and our Savior. And as some of us know all too well, in this way, the master brings division. Turning to Jesus meant others turned away from us. Love for Jesus meant we lost the love of those we love the most. Many Christians in the world today know this sadness. They know the sadness of being husband, wife. One repents, the other doesn't. Division comes. Some of us know the sadness of being in a relationship, close, tight-knit with our sibling. One repents and believes in Jesus, the other doesn't. Division comes. 
Jesus says here, this happens with father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Many of us here know the immense sadness that because Jesus saved me, he redeemed me. My allegiance has shifted. The things that used to consume me no longer consume me. I have a whole new set of desires, which means I now serve the master. I don't repudiate him. I serve him. People on the outside look in and go, What's, what gives? You're not who you used to be. You're no longer fun anymore. You used to want to go do this, and that was cool. Now you don't want to. That's not cool. Division has come in to the relationship. That's what Jesus is talking about. This kind of peace brings this kind of division. Anyone ever been there before? Yeah? What is Jesus warning us about here? He's just simply saying this. Don't be caught off guard by this division. You've counted the costs, and you've found that I'm the treasure of the greatest price. And it's true that others may forsake, but while others may forsake, we have the capital F friend who sticks closer than any parent, closer than any child, closer than any sibling, closer than any spouse. Friends, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Are you waiting? Jesus is coming. Are you working? Jesus has come. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Are you ready to meet Jesus? I'm not talking mentally ready. I'm talking about turn from sin, turn to Jesus in salvation ready. Are you ready to meet Jesus who can come back like the master from the wedding feast at any given time. When he comes back from the wedding feast, it's going to be too late. You can't get ready after he comes. The call is to be ready before he comes. Are you ready? Let's pray. Jesus, it's in your name that we come before you and it's in your name that we pray in your name that we recognize we need you above all things we need your help enabling us to watch we need your help enabling us to work we need your help to open our eyes to see that if I have not turned from my sin and placed my faith in Jesus that I am not ready for his return but today can be the day when sinners are made ready by right now confessing sin to Christ and asking Jesus to save. The good news is that Jesus is the Savior who hears that kind of prayer and saves sinners. Lord, if someone is here and right now by the Holy Spirit you are exposing to them, you are not ready. Lord, would they in response to that make this decision. I I want to be ready and I'm going to ask Jesus to save me and they would respond in faith to Jesus. Lord help. It's in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen.